When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Alongside me for this ride is TJ. Oh, hey. So how was your week, TJ? A little stressful. (laughs) No spoilers, but Game of Thrones. Oh, God. Most stressful hour and a half of television I've ever lived through. You can actually uh, (laughs) find on YouTube, me and Will made a React video. Like, we set the phone up, and it just recorded us while we were watching the episode. So if you want to go find that on YouTube, you can find that at uh, Lindley and Will Watch G.O.T. So it's uh, four and a half minutes of me just losing my mind. It's true. It it was actually really cute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you liked it. I like it. And this week was really hard for me because, well, I won't say hard. It was, it was, yeah, no, it was rough because I had Endgame on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And then Sunday, we got to go to a taping of American Idol live because it was Queen Night. And I think everyone knows what a massive Queen fan I am. And so it was like, I have to be there. And then we had Game of Thrones right after that. And I have not stopped crying since Thursday. So (laughs) last night we ended up just laying on the couch and watching the newsies because I needed needed to be as far away from feelings as possible. And then I found myself crying during the newsies where I'm like, those little kids, they just got so much good stuff. You opened the floodgates. Yeah. <laughs> now they won't shut. Stupid emotions. I don't feel Darn emotions. But... Well, and it doesn't help that we're going to talk about some more death now. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly enough, t- today our subject is going to be a-, a guy who might not be, his name might not be well known, but you know his music. And today we're going to be covering Keith Flint. And I will say that I was really introduced to Keith Flint and the Prodigy in about 1997 when I was in college. And it was the very first date I ever went on. That's right. I didn't have my first date until I went to college. Wait, what? (laughs) Hold up, hold up, hold up. We got to talk about that. Mama Donna and Daddy Terry are very strict. And uh, my my parents, I think I'm the only living person who my parents are like, you're not dating till you're 35. And they meant it. (laughs) Oh, my. So when I went to college, uh, this guy, I can't even, cheese and crackers, I think his name was Jonathan. I feel really bad. But <laughs> we only went on one date, and I'm just like, you're too short for me. And I mean, Wait. 
<laughs> Wait, we need to talk about that now. Hold on. Because <laughs> you're what, like five, five two? two? <laughs> yep. Oh, and uh, okay, yeah, he was sorry. he was like five three, but he was the kind of guy that wore socks with sandals. And <laughs> oh, I feel bad laughing about that. But also, if you're in college and already wearing socks with sandals, like yeah. Yeah, but we went to go see a movie called Event Horizon, and funny enough, it's one of my favorite films to this day. At least he knew what audience he was playing for, because he took me to to see a horror film, and if you haven't seen Event Horizon, it's a great horror film. It's one of my favorites. I rank it right up there with, like, The Shining and Amityville, Carrie. I mean, it's it's such a good film, and it's it's a cult film. Like, there's not a whole heck of a lot of people that have seen it, but, I mean, it's one of my my personal favorites and the end theme was by prodigy and that was like my introduction to this whole new techno music thing and it was like what is this music and when I left college I moved uh, back home and there was this scene happening in Charlotte North Carolina Mm -hmm. and it was this it started out for us as like this little tiny scene and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it turned into rave culture yeah and so, full disclosure, I was a raver, and maybe I can what? dig up some. Po- I can I can dig up some pictures of me in like my Janko jeans and my tiny little shirts, with like, is your mind blown? Yes, <laughs> really. I wish y'all could see my face right now. It is probably <laughs> an odd level of joy at this news. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't know that. I remember my, I had Jenko jeans. I, I was, I and it them. is possible to be part of the rave culture and not do any of the drugs because there's so much positivity and yes, there is a dark side to it and we're going to get to that. But it, they were all about plur and respect and well, you know, plur is peace, plur, love, unity, yeah. yeah, peace, love, unity, respect. And sometimes people put another R on the end, which stands for responsibility. Oh, okay. Nice. It's it is possible to be part of the rave culture, but not by, be a part of the drug culture. And I really liked the music. I liked how excited people got when like the beat dropped. And I'm just I, I moved to Myrtle Beach, and I see these people just going wild over the music and and genuinely like trying to reach for human connection. And I I really enjoyed that culture. So that was kind of my introduction into that music scene. So Prodigy played a big part of my later teen years i was not into the rave scene but i really did enjoy prodigy my sister found it and i really liked the album and was into it for for a good minute there i'm not a huge techno fan but they were one that i really could get on board with oh i was i was super into the techno scene i love fragma i love dj kaoki dj irene like those guys kind of fueled my late teens, like 18, 19, like into 20. I I was really into jungle music and I thought that was a really cool genre of music. So yeah, I mean, this is kind of sort of where I started with my own musical journey and like the music that wasn't kind of forced upon me by my parents. Yeah, I get so excited learning this about you because I did not know this about you and I just know you as liking like the oldies and the musical theater stuff and like some happy bubblegum poppy kind of stuff. (laughs) And of course, Queen, because yeah. If you didn't realize that she was into Queen, you have not been listening at all. Obviously. <laughs> but 
I did not know this about you. And it makes me very excited to learn something new about my friend. <laughs> and also, I'm just trying to imagine you at I, a rave. I will show you pictures. <laughs> if I can dig up some photos, I'll put them on Instagram if people actually care. So, so I should say that tonight, well, tonight, <laughs> we're recording this again on a Tuesday night, if you can't tell. The episode is going to be kind of split into two separate sections because... The first part's going to be about Prodigy itself, which Keith is, you know, inextricably linked with. But then the second part is going to be about Keith. And the reason why I split them up was he was an interesting person for, like, what he did, what he liked, his home life, things like that. And I felt like trying to integrate an individual's life into the music was actually kind of hard for me for this episode. For some reason, it flowed a lot easier with left eye. And right. so so there's going to be a kind of split. So the first thing we'll talk about is Prodigy, and then we'll actually talk about Keith and who he was and what he loved and, and you know, the, the details of his passing. So, And, again, this is still kind of uh, pending. Like, he just passed. Yeah. So he's been on the books as well as, like, when we did the River Phoenix episode. He's been on the books for a while now. Yep. So... I'm I am glad that we are finally getting to him because again, you know, I was a Tracy didn't know I was a secret little I did not. <laughs> so my sources are it's a website called mcn.com which is uh, motorcycle news and I'll get to why that's important later. And it was an article called Keith Flint My Life in Bikes. There's a Music for the Jilted Generation the Prodigy by allmusic.com and that was by Josh Bush. Prodigy, the official charts company by Jack White. I don't think it's that Jack White though. An article called Time Warner Again Faces the Music Over Song Lyrics. An LA Times article by Chuck Phillips. A Short History of Drum and Bass by globaldarkness.com uh, and that article was by Ben Gilman. There was an article in the Mirror called Keith Flint's Tragic Childhood Disowned by His Dad and Abandoned by Psychologists by Lewis Randall. And in this one there's actually a lot more articles but it would be like a line here and a line there. Because funny enough, I had to do a lot of digging for this particular episode. Because even when you just Google Keith Flint, the first 18 pages are just about his death. And then you get to the 19th page and they're like, that's it. That's the whole internet. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, that does happen a lot when we do people that just passed. Will even said... That he didn't realize, because I, I make him read my articles, but he said that he didn't realize that they started as early as they did or that they lasted as long as they had. So I think that's one thing was that, you know, at this point, really only the backlog stuff is still kind of floating out in cyberspace, but you have to really go looking for it. I should say that when we're covering this, I know that there was a a pre-90s kind of party kid thing, like the New York Club Kids, that spawned people like RuPaul and stuff like that. So I'm not under any kind of illusion that we started the rave community. I should say that. I, I, think, I, I think the way that I came off sounding like we started the party scene, we did not. I know that there were there, like 89, 90, 91 had, a, a, had their club scene that really started to take root in New York with like the wild costumes and you know kids having their birthday parties at Studio 54 and stuff like that so I mean I know but I think it made it I think it made the music though a little more accessible yeah once like the 90s mid 90s hit the music was much more accessible in a commercial format yeah well they, they started putting it in 
you know, I think I do cover it a little bit in in the thing about some of the points where their their music is being used in like TVs and commercials and movies and things like that. So, All right. Yeah. So this first part is going to be about the Prodigy. The Prodigy are an English electronic music band from Braintree, Essex, formed in 1990 by keyboardist and songwriter Liam Howlett. The first lineup of the band also included MC and vocalist Maxim, former dancer and vocalist Keith Flint, dancer and live keyboardist Leroy Thornhill, and dancer and vocalist Sharky. Along with the Chemical Brothers and Fatboy Slim, the Prodigy has been credited as the pioneers of breakbeat influence genre, the Big Beat, which achieved mainstream popularity roughly early to mid-90s. I'm surprised at how many of them are dancers. I know I probably shouldn't be since this type of music is heavily rooted in dance and beats, but I am. I'm a little shocked at how many of them were dancers. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I don't exactly know if they were professionally trained or if they're doing like like street dance like street dancing the prodigy is not for everybody i will say that they're not for everybody but they had raging vocals and a driving beat so you can see where like that dance would actually come in so the prodigy first emerged in the underground rave scene in the early 90s and achieved popularity and worldwide recognition with the uk number one single Firestarter and Breathe, and both of those were in 1996. They earned titles like the Premier Dance Act for the Alternative Masses and the Godfathers of Rave, and I will say yes. Yes, I will agree with that. And remained one of the most successful electronic acts of all time. They've sold an estimated 30 million records worldwide and numerous won numerous awards during their career, including two Brit Awards for Best Dance Act and three MTV Video Music Awards, two Kring. That's how it's written. Awards and five MTV <laughs> Europe Music Awards and two Grammy nominations. But I'll get to like basically kind of the rundown of like all their awards because we actually did the math on this. So the band was named after the Mog Prodigy Synthesizer, which I think is like an interesting kind of uh, send up to something that helped create the music. Yeah, that's so, really cool. Yeah. So Liam had taken piano lessons in his youth and gained the ability to play difficult passages in just a few run-throughs. After he decided to pursue a music career, Howland met dancer and vocalist Keith Flint mid-1989 at a rave, which Howland was DJing. And after Flint requested Howland make a mixtape for him, he obliged and returned the cassette several days later. A cassette. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> With a collection of his own songs on the other side. Hallett had scratched the words Prodigy onto the cassette, the same name as the, the, the synthesizer, and it was Hallett's moniker. The tape was well-received by Flint and keyboardist Leroy Thornhill, who developed a new dance sequence to the music and suggested to Hallett they begin a group together. They were soon joined by MC and vocalist Maxim, then known as Maxim Reality, and a female dancer and vocalist, Sharky, a friend of Flint's, and together they became the first lineup of Prodigy. The group's first live gig was at the Four Aces in Dalston, London. With a group secured, Howlett wrote, produced, and mixed a 10-track demo tape on a Roland W30 sampling vocal workstation keyboard. Pa pa pa. That, that is a rough so- sentence. Jesus. That was so hard to get through. (laughs) And approached Tam Tam Records with the hopes of securing a record deal, but they declined. And the reason why they declined was probably because they didn't understand what they were listening to. 
Like, if you think about it, I mean, a precedent hadn't really been set for this kind of music in the mainstream. So he then turned to XL Recordings, headed by Tim Palmer and Nick Halix, head of A&R, who agreed to meeting and subsequently picked up the demo and signed the group on a four-time single contract. Not sure what that means, but hey, good for them. In February 1991, the band released the extended play What Evil Lurks on 12-inch Final, containing four songs Halix produced on the demo. In August 1991, the Prodigy released their debut single, Charlie, which samples dialogue from the Charlie Says series of animated films produced by the Central Office of Information. I didn't look that up. I really should have looked that up. It became a hit in the rave scene at the time and reached number three on the UK singles charts, thus catapulting the band into a wider public attention. The success of Charlie began a trend of mixing dance and hardcore rave tracks with cartoon samples, such as A Trip to Triumph by Urban Hype, Sesame Treat by Smart Ease, which were rave hit with clubbers, but not to reviewers and critics who dismissed the music as kitty rave or toy town techno. <laughs> Actually, there's I mean, a... that's funny, but... Yeah. Ouch. So <laughs> you'll find out in just a second why, why I love this little kind of fact. The band's second single, Everybody in the Place, the Fairground edit, was released in December 1991, and it reached number two in the UK, beaten by, can you guess what it is, 1991? Uh, no. It was... Beat in December of 1991. I was so little. <laughs> Do you know what happened in November of 1991? No. Is it a Chernobyl thing? No. Because I know you're really into 19, Chernobyl. That was 1986. Oh, okay. Also, there's I'm a really five-part five miniseries coming out about Chernobyl on HBO, so I'm, we have to keep HBO after Game of Thrones is done. Don't make fun of me. I'm just really bad at history, y'all. No, it's it's more than history. It's rock history. I don't know what happened. It was beaten by the re-release of Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen following the death of their singer, Freddie Mercury. Shocking that you would know that. <laughs> I was just, I was but a babe. I didn't know yes, Queen but you yet. Know, you, there are these things called books with words in them. When do I have time to read? <laughs> in September 1992, the band released their full-length debut album, Experience, produced entirely by Hallett. The idea of making one originated from XL, and initially Hallett wanted to produce a rave concept album inspired the, by the progressive rock band Pink Floyd. So, you know how like Pink Floyd was making like the wall and yeah. dark side of the moon he kind of wanted to do that with rave music so kind of cool yeah i, I like you know idea. honestly i, I would support it yeah i would have done it yeah. Yeah. but he abandoned that idea due to the risk of limiting his musical ideas it peaked at number 12 which is really respectable on the uk album charts and was certified platinum by the british phonograph industries or bpi for short for selling over three million copies the album contains more sampling of the songs from other artists and closes with a live version of Death of the Prodigy Dancers featuring Maxim on vocals. As with Charlie, it became a landmark release in the history of British rave music. Five singles spawned from the album Charlie, Everybody in the Place, Fire, Jericho, Out of Space, and Wind It Up, Rewound. And the latter was a remix of Wind It Up. After experience and the run of singles that accompany it, the Prodigy moved to distance themselves from the kitty rave reputation that now dogged them. So they're trying to move away from kind of what made them... What well, made them the popular? Map. Yeah. The rave scene was beginning to move into its hardcore phase with criminal justice act 
anti-rave legislation on the horizon calling the rave music repetitive beats. Whoa. (laughs) The Prodigy responded to the bill by writing their law. And so this is about the uh, music for the Jilted Generation. In 1993, Hallett released an anonymous white label bearing the only the title Earthbound One. Its hypnotic hard edge sound won wide underground approval. It was officially released as One Love later that year and went on to chart number eight in the UK. The following year, the Prodigy's second album, Music for the Jilted Generation, debuted in the UK album charts at number one. And jettisoned into positive reactions from album critics, adding the element of big beat and electro-industrial to the mix. The album expressed a wider spectrum of music styles with the heavy breakbeat-based tracks, complemented by the concept sequence, the narcotic suite, and rock-oriented inclinations. Their law featured pop will eat itself. The album was later described <laughs> as... <laughs> I love that title so much. I couldn't hold it in. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Well, it's the same thing. Like, I love Mac Miller's titles. So, yeah, exactly. Tip for tat here. Yeah. The album was later described as a complex, powerful record that propelled dance music into stadiums with rock and roll swagger, which that's kids' wine that, that he's on this podcast because, yeah. Oh, man. I got to tell you, some of the best days of my life were spent listening to this music. You know, people kind of look down a lot on techno music, but they don't. All they hear is the repetitive beat. But what I hear is someone who has, I consider techno music kind of like having 37 TVs on, 37 different channels, and being able to pick up the correct line of dialogue out of every TV. Like they take all of these elements and put them together into one cohesive piece. And so for someone who is like going to spit on techno, the fact is they're taking all of these different elements of music and creating something that is cohesive, complex, and awesome with a driving beat that I just, I love, I love it. (laughs) I do. It's, it might just be noise to you, but it's music to me. So the music for the Jilted Generation was nominated for the Mercury Music Prize, although Hallett had reaffirmed his dedication to making Prodigy a hard dance band, commercially successful, but without compromise. So the band managed to continue to prevent overexposure by the media by refusing to appear on Top of the Pops or other TV shows in the UK. And so for those who don't know, Top of the Pops is kind of like our our Soul Train, our Hit Parade kind of shows where they kind of feature... I only know it because it was in Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) (laughs) And I know Queen appeared on it. Go figure, LD knows something about Queen. To date, their only studio appearance on British television came when they appeared on the BBC Two series Dance Energy in 1991, performing Everybody in Place. In the ensuing years, their video received a strong level of support by MTV Europe, which boosted their popularity across the continent. Keith Flint hosted an episode of MTV, the show... uh, the show that was on TV, I don't know if you ever saw it, 120 Minutes. Mm-mm, nope. Yeah, it was uh, back when MTV actually still played music videos. And this oh, was yeah. a block of music videos. That was 120 Minutes. So they were taking two hours. They'd talk about, like, music, and then they'd show you a music video. Whoa. You're blowing I, my mind over here. I know. And so if you'll notice right now, most of their stuff is in the UK. The electronic movement really hadn't moved into America. We were kind of slowly coming out of grunge and just moving into the more pop pop stuff with like Hanson and Spice Girls. So we were we're in that mode right now. Finally, they're they're starting to get a little bit more airplay with 120 minutes. 
on MTV in 1995, and so following the international success of music for the Jilted Generation, the band augmented their lineup with guitarist Jim Davies, a live band member who later joined the group, Pitch Schiffer. Pitch Shifter. No matter how you say it, it still kind of sounds like a dirty word or or it's like slang euphemism or okay, something. Okay, so it's not just me. <laughs> Pitch Shiffer. Who... <laughs> In 1995, for tracks such as Their Law, Break and Enter 95, and various live-only interludes and versions. So you could find some of his stuff on things that they had recorded live. This is a parental warning for the next sentence. So if you have sensitive ears in your car, just skip forward like 10 seconds. So he was soon to be replaced by Jizzbutt. <laughs> Go for it. So his real name is actually Graham Anthony Butt of the band Janice Stark, who remained with the band for the next three years. And he only comes up like one other time, but I didn't want any parents to be like listening in the car and just be like, because oh. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a naughty name. A number of the songs in the album were used in the film Hackers, which starred Johnny Lee Miller and Angelina Jolie. Have you seen this movie? I have seen parts of it, most of it, but not like one full time through watching honestly it's one of my favorite movies I did like it what I it, saw of it I liked it I have it on blu-ray of course you do <laughs> you have everything on blu-ray or dvd it it's so incredibly dated now and if you know anything about computers you know that is not how hacking works <laughs> so <laughs> but there's a a 1990s throwback charm to it and i'll just like it's you know you have those movies that you watch when you're sick like yeah. this will make me feel better like wills wills is um groundhog day and clue and those are his sick movies one of my sick movies is hackers nice the breakfast club is another one. Ooh, that's a good one so that should tell you kind of musically where prodigy is because it's 1995 and it's hackers <laughs> So if you know anything about the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm not putting the brunt of the success of Prodigy on the shoulders of Hackers, but it probably definitely opened them up to a wider audience that might not know them as well. Yeah, probably. The release of Firestarter in 1996. Boom. Yeah. That song. Me too. <laughs> features vocals for the first time, courtesy of a new look Keith Flint. And I think this is kind of where he did that double hawk. Yeah. Like he made that double hawk thing. That's pretty cool. He looked awesome. Yeah. If you haven't seen the video for Prodigy's Firestarter, pause the podcast, go on to YouTube, check it out. It is, they have some of the best music videos, and I think we'll get into a couple more of their music videos, but Firestarter is just iconic. Love it. So that helped break the band into the United States and other overseas market and reached number one on the UK singles chart. And this year, Prodigy also headlined the prestigious Lollapalooza Festival. That's a festival I would have gone to. The long-awaited third Prodigy album, The Fat of the Land, which I'm not kidding, might have been like the second CD I ever bought. Like bought it with my own money. I think the first, I think the first album I ever bought with my own money was a band called Everything. And it, the album was called Supernatural, and they were kind of the band that I was sort of a groupie for. I say groupie because I saw them like probably about seven or eight times, and they only had one Holy hit. 
<laughs> Whoa. They had one hit, which everyone knows. It's Hooch. Yeah. Are you just saying that? I think or? I know it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, Fat of the Land probably was, like, the second album I ever bought on my own. Featuring simplified melodies, sparse samplings, less rave music influences, and punk-like vocals supplied by the shockingly made-over Flint. The album, nonetheless, retained the bone-jarring breaks and buzzsaw synths so idiomatic of the band. I'm sorry, the album cemented the band's position as one of the most internationally successful acts in the dance genre, entering into the UK and US charts at number one. See, I think that's kind of why I liked it a little bit better than other types of techno was because it had that kind of rock infusion. But it was that like I the, really like it was but the perfect still, music for angsty teenagers. Yeah, it still <laughs> had the techno and the fun and the funky thing that you could dance to, but there was that little bit of of angst. Yeah, yeah, I like that you could kind of rage to it, like you could just go in and you know throw your fists and like kick and you know be body angry yeah and it it still had awesome lyrics awesome melodies awesome music it was just it it all around encompassed kind of how i was feeling when i was 16 so well there you go prodigy were getting considerable airplay on rock stations with their controversial track okay i'm only gonna say this name one time and then i'm going to refer to it by a different kind of way so again if you have kids in the car skip ahead five seconds so they had a controversial track called Smack My Bitch Up. So they, they got some negative backlash for the song, of course. The National Organization for Women, also called Now, criticized the song and its music videos. The song lyrics consisted entirely of repeating the phrase, Change My Pitch Up, Smack My Bee Up, which now stated are dangerous and offensive message advocating violence against women. Hallett responded to the criticism by stating that the meaning of the song and the lyrics were being misinterpreted and the phrase meant doing anything intensely like being on stage, going for extreme manic energy. The band didn't actually write the lyric, but rather it was sampled from the hip-hop ultramagnetic MC's track Give the Drummer Some, which also appears on the Dirty Chamber Sessions. They had also sampled another ultramagnetic MC song, Critical Beatdown, on their earlier Out of Space single. The National Organization of Women also believed the lyrics were in reference to administering heroin, smack, to another person. Several radio stations limited the airplay song to nighttime hours. In September 1997, Prodigy performed Breathe at the 1997 Video Music Awards and won the Viewer's Choice Awards. So if you haven't seen the music video for Smack My Be Up. Just say smack. Okay, I'm going to say smack. I'll say smack. It is like six minutes of insanity, and it's kind of hard to watch, but kind of awesome at the same time. I don't know if I can rewatch that anytime soon. I'm pretty dizzy. Yeah, that it is a dizzying. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So the music video for Smack, okay, I'm going to try to not butcher this name, but it was Jonas Ockerlin features a first-person point of view of someone going clubbing and indulging in large amounts of drugs and alcohol. Which definitely feels that way when you're watching it. It's dizzying. Yeah. The the other content includes the protagonist getting into fistfights with men, abusing women, vomiting repeatedly, and picking up a lap dancer, portrayed by British glamour model Teresa May, and copulating with her. And much of the aforementioned is depicted pretty explicitly... <laughs> Really explicitly. And at the end of the video, the camera pans over to a mirror revealing that all of this horrible stuff, like 
I'm trying to word this as nicely as possible. Everything that the protagonist has done has been done in a first-person perspective, and it's explicit drug use, using the bathroom, like kicking in the door of the men's room, pulling a guy out of a bathroom, like... Extensive drinking. Lots of drinking, driving under the influence, and at the end... Spoiler alert, There's it's actually a woman. So, yeah. And so it's kind of like a, oh, it was a woman doing all that. MTV would only air the video between 1 and 5 due to the controversial material. So 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. due to the material. Right. After one week, MTV removed the video completely at Now's request. The director got the inspiration from the contents of the video after a night of drinking and partying in Copenhagen. The, during her performance... At the Reading Festival on the 29th of August, 1998, the Prodigy and the Beastie Boys had an onstage disagreement over the track. On stage. With, what? Yeah, with the Beastie Boys requesting that the song should be pulled from their set because it was considered to be offensive to those who suffered from domestic abuse. Which, go Beastie Boys. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I am I love Prodigy, but, you know... Whether it was their intention or not, they had to know that there would be some controversy around it. Oh, you you can't release a song like Smack and not expect some kind and of I've, blowback. And I do kind of feel like they played into that controversy a little bit with the music video and then pushing forward with it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Choosing to ignore the Beastie Boys plea, Maxim introduced Smack with the declaration, they don't want us to play this effing tune. But the way things go, I do whatever the F I want. <laughs> the Beastie Boys aren't really ones to pull punches either. So this must have actually really meant something to them to have like an on set, like an on stage confrontation about this. Walmart and Kmart announced later that they would pull Fat of the Land off their shelves despite the fact that the LP had resided in their shore shelves for over 20 weeks and the fact that they had sold 150,000 copies of the album total. The two stores found the marketing campaign for the new single offensive. And remember, like, you couldn't... You well, even in... I remember when Walmart was taking a stand against music and Meredith Brooks put out her album mm -hmm. and for the single, they wanted to release the single because it was huge, which I'm going to go ahead and say it. It was bitch, but they forced the manufacturers of the sleeve to actually just title it the song. <laughs> oh my God. Well, they've done this for a while. It's not like it was... I mean, it was a whole big thing, and I think they still do that where you have it has to be clean to sit on their shelves. But I just think this is really funny because I did not realize all this controversy around it at the time. Well, we but, were really young, and like things like musical controversy really didn't hit us. At the 1998 Video Music Awards in Los Angeles, Smack won two awards, Best Dance Video and Breakthrough Video. And in 1999, it saw the release of Prodigy's Dirty Chambers Session 1, a DJ mix album by Howlett, produced as an official record of a successful great appearance on the British Radio 1. In June of the same year, when the band had arguably reached their commercial peak, they parted companies with the guitarist, Jizzbutt. <laughs> I'm not 12. I'm <sighs> laughing because she is so embarrassed saying this. Because I know my mom's probably going to listen. Following 1999, Thornhill departed from the group after splitting up with Sarah Cox. The band's website was replaced with their logo, We Will Be Back, set against a black background, which would remain until 2002. 
So basically they broke up. <laughs> yeah. And quite suddenly. Also, this is one of the first people that we've really talked about that had like a website. Well, because they were now. Yeah. But it just makes me realize like how now now. In 2002, after taking their break from touring and recording, the single Baby's Got a Temper was released to critical disappointment. The song was written by Keith Flint's side band, Flint. So that was like his side project was just right. Flint. Solo project. Yeah, solo thing. project. Yeah. yeah. Produced by Howlett and also featured Jim Davies. So, I mean, it was kind of like Prodigy Light, I guess. Once again, the bands courted controversy by including references to so-called the so-called date rape drug Ruhypnol in the song lyrics, which I will say, not um, my next subject, actually also has a song about date rape, too, so. Oh, my. Yeah. The song's music video was also controversial, which is kind of nothing new, which featured a barely covered woman milking a cow in a suggestive fashion. That was the quotation, not my words. <laughs> <laughs> the complete unedited version of the video was aired on MTV2 in 2002 as a part of a special late night countdown show of the most controversial music videos ever to air on MTV. That same year, however, however, Q Magazine named The Prodigy one of the 50 bands to see before you die. Prodigy's fourth studio album, Always Outnumbered, Never Outgunned, was released on the 23rd of August 2004 and on September 14th, 2004 in the U.S. So we actually got it a little bit later than... The Brits did. A precursory and experimental single, Memphis Bell, was released in very limited numbers, followed by the traditional release of the singles, Girls. In the U.S. studio version, it contains a bonus track, which is a remix of Girls entitled, hold on, this is going to blow your mind. Oh. It's called More Girls. Whoa. I know. The album, which topped the U.K. <laughs> charts in its debut week, was promoted by a two-year-long tour. 5,000 digital copies of Memphis Bell was sold over the internet. And that's going to be like, still, that's that's kind of in its infancy. That's when like LimeWire was kicking off. and Yeah, there was a big deal then. Napster. Because before I knew better, I was, that was like 2002. I was a freshman in college, so I did a lot of LimeWire, not realizing that that was bad. Yeah, no no more pirating. Like in, in hindsight, when you're like a poor college kid, it's like, I'll just steal this song off the internet and you don't realize the implications of what you're actually doing. So, Oh, yeah. Each copy was a combination of consumer-chosen instrumental rhythmic and melodic options of which 39,600 choices were available. Five mixes were sold in three oh. five. What's that? I'm listening to the numbers you're rattling off. It's like choose your own adventure of music. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> That's kind of cool, I guess, yeah. but also, like, it's, but also kind of lazy. No, you give me the song you made. <laughs> I can make my own song if I want to. Five mixes were sold in three file formats, Wave, two audio mixes in MP3, and a 5.1 TDS surround sound mix. All were free of digital rights management. In 2005, they released the compilation, Their Law. It was their clapback to censorship. So it was their law, the singles, 
1990 to 2005, which spawned the singles containing new remixes of the song Out of Space, Audio Bullies Remix, and Voodoo People, the Pendulum Remix. The artwork represented drawn versions of the front covers of the Out of the Space and Voodoo People singles releases. The latter was also followed by a music video filmed in Romford Market, Essex, which featured on the DVD release of the compilations. Sharky, the group's only female member, is shown running and winning the race depicted in the video. Also in 2005, the song You'll Be Under My Wheels from the Always Outnumbered, Never Outgunned album was added to the soundtrack of Need for Speed, Most Wanted. Well, all right. It's, it's a video game. Oh, okay. The song Under My Wheels was also in the soundtrack of the Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. The Prodigy's first two albums, 1992's Experience and 1994's Music for the Jilted Generation, were re-released in its expanded deluxe editions on the 4th of August 2008, as well as being remastered. The new package featured a bonus disc including mixes, rarities, and live tracks. The two albums also featured expanded artwork in addition to the new musical content. When asked about the idea, Hallett responded that, that they were getting ready to make a new album. No, we're done with all that, those albums. Now, all the old material. So basically, he's like, we're done with that. We're not doing any more remixes. We're finished. We're moving on to new stuff. We didn't actually want to do the greatest hits. We were ready to start our new record until the record company pointed out that it was in our contract. But then we got into it and tried to be creative with it as much as we could. And, you know, we ended up being really proud of it. You have to have a different brain when you're doing a record like that. It's more about saying this is your achievement. I could hold it in one hand all the records we released. And that's so cool. We're moving on now. We're getting on with the new record. The new record was actually called Invader. Must die, which I <laughs> again, fun. I really like that. The Prodigy tested a few of the new tracks at the Rainbow Warehouse, Birmingham, and Plug in the Sheffield in May. The Prodigy showcased four new songs at the Oxygen Festival in the early hours of the 13th of July, 2008. Uh, among the tracks were Worlds on Fire, Warrior's Dance, Mescaline, and First Warning. It was also, so it was featured in the gangster movie Smoking Aces and among the songs on the soundtrack for Electronic Arts video game Need for Speed Undercover. So they've been used on two of the video games now. On November 5th, 2008, it was announced that the band's fifth studio album would be called Invaders Must Die and would be released on the new label. It was released in the U.S. on March the 3rd, 2009 and Prodigy's first album since 1997's Fat of the Land to feature all three members of the band. The album featured Dave Grohl on the drums, which is awesome, on the track Run With The Wolves. The top five hit Omen and Invaders Must Die were co-produced with Does It Offend You? Yeah, frontman James Rushent. I'm, I'm, if, forgive me if I got that name wrong. The band said that their album was going to go back to their old school but cutting edge roots. The album was released as a CD, DVD set, double vinyl, digital download, and a luxury 7-inch vinyl box set including all five seven-inch CD, DVD, bonus, CD, poster, stickers, and stencil, which nothing says hardcore like getting stencils. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a massive kind of release thing. Invaders Must Die was released on the 21st of February in Australia and Europe on the 23rd of February 2009, charting number one in the UK with one-week sales of over 97,000 higher figure than for either Always Outnumbered or their single collections. The album also reached top five in Germany and Australia and top ten in Norway and several other European countries. To coincide with the release of the album, the band embarked on a nine-date UK arena tour with the support of Drizzy Rascal, Noisia, Herb, and DJ Kissy Sellout. The tour included the first edition of the band's 
own annual dance gig, the Warriors Dance Festival, the single Omen, debuted at number one on the Canadian Singles Chart the week of the 25th of February 2009 and won the the Kerrang! And I'm going to keep saying it like that because that's how it's written. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. I'm just going to keep laughing at it every time you do. They won the Kerrang! Award for Best (laughs) Single. Initial critics' response to Invaders Must Die was somewhat mixed. At Metacritic, which assigns a normalized rating out of 100 reviews from mainstream critics, which is like, that's the little green sticker that you always see on Netflix. And I think like Rotten Tomatoes takes that into consideration now, like Metacritic. Uh, The album received an average score of 60 based on 20 reviews. However, the album was well-received by fans who welcomed it in a positive light compared to Always Outnumbered and Never Outgunned. The two singles that followed, Warrior's Dance and Take Me to the Hospital, were released on the 11th of May and the 31st of August 2009, respectively. The former song peaked at number 9 on the UK singles chart, while the latter included a VHS-filmed music video that premiered on VidZone. A fourth single, Invaders Must Die, Liam H. Rempt version Some of these names are just put vowels where they're supposed to go. No joke. (laughs) For the special edition of the album was released, Hallett would later describe the album as more of a celebration. We've come back together and we're like, yeah, we're here. We're really buzzing. And I like that, that, you know, they did take that break. And instead of breaking up, they took time to do what they wanted to do. They really didn't break up. They just kind of stopped recording and stopped touring. It was just kind of radio silence. They just needed to breathe it. Yeah. And then they got back together and they just created some awesome stuff together. In May of 2011, the band released Worlds on Fire which was their first live album and concert film. So it was the the only time that they had done, like, a, they had recorded a live concert. Oh, okay. So it was documenting their July 24th show at the Milton Keys Bowl as part of that year's Warriors Dance Festival. The film screened to select theaters across Europe for one night. So I guess like a Fathom event. On the 16th of November 2010, Hallett announced that after their American tour with Linkin Park, the Prodigy were to re-enter the studio to record new material. On August 6, 2011, Prodigy headlined the Przdanak Woodstock in Poland. I am so sorry to our Polish listeners. While at their two final shows in Brazil, they performed two new tracks, AWOL and Dogbite. They also headlined the 2012 Download Festival on the 8th of June, playing their regular set list in addition. They added three new songs, Jet Fighter, Dogbite, and AWOL. Accompanied by onset imagery of jet fighter aircraft, uh, Liam Hallett confirmed that the album would not be dubstep, thank God, <laughs> but that it will feel fresh while darker. So the Prodigy were still active in 2012, 2015. I'm kind of breezing through this. It's necessary at this point. Yeah. And then, um, so we kind of breezed through a couple things, but they played a lot of festivals. And in 2015, Prodigy announced a winter 2015 UK tour and a mainland Europe tour. And Public Enemy was going to support them. So that's kind of cool. All right. Uh, The Prodigy's seventh studio album, No Tourist, was released on the 2nd of November, 2018. Wow. uh, Yeah. That's what we were saying, where Will had said that he didn't realize that they started so early and were still releasing music up to yeah last I year. I didn't realize that either. Honestly, like, I just started, like, in my head going, wait a minute, did she say 2016? And then now 2018, like, I I was not aware that they were still releasing new music. I mean, 
maybe it's just not reaching us here. Yeah. Or maybe we're too old to and what's, find it. And what's interesting is within this information, it goes from 2018 to 2017 to 2016 and then back to, to 2019. So in okay. this just like short little blurb, it kind of bounces a little time hops. Okay. So the Prodigy's seventh studio album, No Tourist, was released on the 2nd of November 2018 under a new recording deal with BMG Rights Management. Since September 2017, the deal reunites the group with uh, Howlett's Song Publishing, which BMG had acquired from EMI Music Publishing in 2012 as part of the Virgin Music Catalog. The band initially announced that new music was due for release at an unspecified date in 2017 on their Twitter account, and they had announced that on the 26th of December 2016. So that's what I was saying, like, it kind of hops back and forth. Oh, okay. Howlett had previously stated that the band may cease releasing full studio albums in favors of EPs. And if you'll remember our little lesson that TJ gave us uh, last episode, an EP is, what, four songs? It's Yeah, it's basically, it's, it's smaller than an album. It's anywhere from two to like six songs. Generally somewhere between two and four. But it's kind of a, a useful tool because... There is so much emphasis on singles. So this is actually becoming a trend where you're seeing more artists relying just on releasing EPs. Well, it's interesting that you say that because they say they basically cited the reason why they weren't going to be doing like full albums anymore was a lack of interest and the time that it actually takes to make a full studio album. Right. So during their European tour in December 2017, the band had premiered three new songs, Resonate, Need Someone, which was initially titled New Beats, and Boom Trap. That would kind of be the end. Aww. So I will say that they had, like a lot of the artists that we do, they had musical styles and influences. So along with the Chemical Brothers and Fatboy Slim, the Prodigy have been credited as a pioneers of the big beat genre, which achieved mainstream popularity in the 1990s. The Prodigy, however is not considered entirely representative of the genre as their production often reflected more intelligent edge of trip-hop and rarely broke into the mindless arena of true big beat. So basically what they're saying was it wasn't just that repetitive da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Right. They had well-thought-out musical patterns and pairing it with introspective lyrics. My exposure to them is limited to the one album um but even then i enjoyed it because it did kind of the songs moved they took you kind of full circle sometimes or they took you on a journey through the song so that they didn't necessarily end where they started and i I thought the music was interesting yeah well they also (laughs) had a definitive beginning and a definitive end and the next song you got was different than the one that you just heard Right. So it was more of like an anthology. Yeah. Kind of like an episode of The Twilight Zone, not an episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know, it was, more, <laughs> it was more like The Twilight Zone where you could drop in at any point and right. still be entertained rather than something like Game of Thrones, which you just can't start it in the middle and understand the whole thing. So. No. The Prodigy are also considered alternative dance, techno, electronica, breakbeat, hardcore, rave, and electronic rock. Hallett cited, this is Liam Hallett, Liam Hallett cited early electro as his big influence, mentioning tunes like Clear by American Music Group, Cybertron, and 
Al-Nafishi, I'm so sorry, by Hashem. Hallett also cited the Bomb Squad, Public Enemy, and Rage Against the Machine as influences. Um, I wanted to end this on more of an upbeat thing before we actually kind of get into Keefe's life. So they were nominated for two Grammys in 1998 for Fat of the Land and in 2005 for Always Outnumbered, Never Outgunned. In 2012, they won the Best Live Act for Themselves, nominated in 1997 for three MTV Music Awards and won two for Breathe and again in 1998 for Smack and won two out of the four nominations, including Breakthrough Video and Best Dance Video. In total, they have been nominated for roughly 81 awards and won 33 of those. Wow. And in total, they have seven studio albums. I broke this up because Prodigy itself was an anomaly and Keith himself was an anomaly. Within anomaly. Wrapped in a taco. Yeah. So I wanted to separate those two because Keith had a kind of an interesting life. Oh, okay. Keith Charles Flint was born the 17th of September, 1969. So what is he? Is he the same thing as you? No, he's a Virgo. Oh. He was an English vocalist and dancer, most associated with the Electronic Dance Act Prodigy. He started out as a dancer where he became the front man of the group and performed on the group's two UK number one singles, Firestarter and Breathe, both released in 1996. He was actually also the lead singer, we talked about this briefly, of his own band, Flint. He owned a motorcycle racing team, uh, Traction Control, which is an awesome name. <laughs> That's cool. Which won three Isle of Man's TT races in 2015 and competed in the British Super Sport Championship. So we'll touch on that a little bit because I thought that was really, yeah, really kind of cool. interesting. So Flint was born in Redbridge, London, England, to Clive and Yvonne Flint on the 17th of September, 1969, and was initially raised in East London in the mid-1970s, and his parents moved out to Springfield, Essex. I don't know much about maps, so I don't know if that's more suburban or village-like. So. Yeah. His childhood know. was described as unhappy and feuding with his parents, who parted when he was young. He came from a broken home and was kicked out by his father when he was a teenager, and he attended the Boswell School in Clemsford and moved to Braintree. After leaving his school, Flint was described as being a bright boy, and here's where I kind of feel for him, with dyslexia. And he was disruptive in class. I mean, I get it, because I, <laughs> I was the same kid. So, up until this point, uh, he was actually expelled from school at the age of 15. Flint then worked as a roofer and lady, later enthusiastically embraced the acid house scene of the late 80s. So his musical influences came later than Liam's, than Hallett's. Oh, okay. Because Hallett was like playing the piano when he was super young. So right. his, his influence came a little bit later. His childhood was turbulent one where his parents divorced when he was really young. I couldn't actually, like, finding stuff out about his family was kind of hard. And again, I think it's just right. private people, and I'm not gonna go digging. But yeah, they divorced, and it was really hard because he was plagued by really big blowout fights with his dad. So mm, That's too bad. Yeah. But Keith admitted that he was a handful as a child, and he always had a ton of energy, and, and that turned into teenage rebellion. Boy, same. I mean... <laughs> it's like I'm reading my own book. 
So uh, this is a copy and paste, so it's going to sound kind of silly coming out of my mouth. But after (laughs) cutting his hair into one of the wacky styles that would later become his trademark, Keith was also kicked out of school. So he was then sent to a special school, that's in quotation marks, don't know why, where he claimed they used hypnosis in a last-ditch bid to calm him down. Keith was also said to have been tested and shown to have an extremely high IQ, but he claimed the problem was on the spectrum somewhere. So I'm thinking that's more of like a looking back at it kind of thing because I feel like the phrase on the spectrum hasn't really come into our lexicon until recently. Right. Well, and maybe it means something a little different. Maybe. I don't know. If you actually, guys, if if you're listening and you understand the terminology or the etymology. Oh, there we go. Oh, my God. How did I? I don't know how you pulled that because I seriously. If you know the etymology of the word. Or the phrase on the spectrum prior to relation to autism, please let us know because that's kind of what we equate it to now. Right. That is the most intelligent (laughs) sentence I have said out loud. In a candid interview, Keith actually revealed that at his lowest point, he locked himself in his room and banged his head against the wall as he listened to the jam. The jam. Okay, so for this section, guys, I want to let you know that I pulled this from an article from The Times and it's a quotation, so... If this is misquoted, I do apologize, and you'll you'll see why I'm saying that now. Is he told the Times, I've always had mental problems, so to speak. I'm incredibly self-destructive. <laughs> Keith's unhappy teenage years and lack of success at school worsened his already volatile relationship with his dad, Clive. The pair's arguing eventually led to Clyde kicking his son out of his house. His bandmate, Leroy Thornhill, attempted to explain the issue between Keith and his dad in a 1997 interview with TheQuietus.com. And that's thequietus.com. Leroy said that his dad, quite successful, and because Keith was a little mod, and then he was a biker, there was such a clash there. So basically, like, his dad was a straight-laced, kind of self-made guy, and Keith was your average rebel. Yeah. Kind of fitting in with the outcasts. Yeah. I mean, I, I can relate to that. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Like, you're an angsty teenager. Right. It's just some people's parents take it a little bit more in stride than other people do. I imagine that his dad expected a bit more from him than what he got. I would have effing hated to have gone to school with him. But now (laughs) the band's come along and he finally realized that he can do so much. Keith just needs a little push and once he's into something, he won't stop until he's done. He's so much more clever than he thinks he is. After school, Keith had a number of jobs but never found anything that really suited him until he met Liam Hallett and they formed Prodigy together. Prodigy's that little band that we just talked about for like an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. After shooting the fame... Keith insisted that he was lucky to have found a place in the band because he wouldn't have found any other job. He said, can you think of any other job that I could do? My school results were terrible and I, I don't know how to do wallpaper or anything else. Do wallpaper. I like that it's like, I'm bad at school and I can't do wallpaper. <laughs> Find me something in between. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked about how Flint and Liam had met earlier. He said that he liked Hallett's taste in music. And Flint came back after getting that tape that we talked about. And he was super enthusiastic and insisted that Hallett should be playing his tracks up on stage. And said that Flint, along with his friend Leroy, would, would dance with him. So he kind of came with this idea for what Prodigy ended up being. Well, that kind of answers our question earlier about what it meant that they were dancers. So apparently, like from what I'm gathering, Prodigy started with like them being dancers on stage, 
while the band played. Yeah, and it's really funny because a lot of these articles that I read kind of harped on his new look. So he started infusing this new punk look. So I'm like curious about what leap he took. We're gonna have to go like, look. like look at old pictures of Keith. Yeah, Flint. we're gonna have to go look at old videos and pictures. Well, there's there's not a video. Oh, there's no music videos before Firestarter. I don't think so because Firestarter was like their first big commercial hit. Oh, okay. and so with a big commercial hit, you make a music video for it. So, but they had some some success over in England first. Yeah, but I'm sure that we can find pictures. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure we can find photos. That's true. But yeah, I mean, like, all the articles that I read mentioned that around the Firestarter time was when he took on that iconic punk look with, like, the double mohawk and the eyeliner and, you know, the cargo shorts that went down to his calves, that, that kind of, like, dirty, raw look. Right. Okay, so Flint experimented with several solo and side projects, including the band that we talked about before, which was called Flint, and Clever Brains Fryin', only one single, Aim 4, by Flint, was released commercially with Flint's debut album, Device Number 1, being canceled before release. So, in regards, it was kind of like Karen, where she, yeah. where the project was shelved, her, like, solo album was kind of shelved, so. yeah. But I want to talk about this because I thought this was really interesting. Keith was a keen motorcyclist. He actually rode 1,500 miles from England to southern Spain to attend the 2007 Spanish Motorcycle Grand Prix and also raced in club competitions. He rode with Lee Thompson of the band Madness, and he actually had his own motorcycle team, Team Traction Control, which competed in the British Sportsman Championship as part of the British Sports Bike Championship. In 2015, Team Traction Control machines won two Isle of Man's TT races ridden by Ian Hutchinson with a biking history ranging from for Yamaha Frizzell to his very own Moto2 bike, the London-born star appeared in the the motorcycle uh, motorcycle news article on new. Well, he appeared in that magazine several times, pursuing his own racing career and even successfully running the own team, both short circuits and on the roads, which is really impressive because it wasn't just like a pastime for him; it was actually a passion for him. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> and this is not all I I'm have. Still processing. I'm still processing. <laughs> I'm still. Like, I don't have a lot to say on it. I'm just processing it all because that's really cool. Like he had that other passion and made something of it. You know, with his team. Yeah. So he did an interview that was initially published in 2014, and then after his passing, they kind of uh, reissued it. So I'm going to go through a little bit of that article because it is really kind of insightful it gives you kind of a look on his it, it gives you kind of an insight on his personality so this is a quotation from the mcn article back in 1988 i had a go on shane emmett's rev red bull Ducani, and roger marshall trained me up to have a bit of a go racing in new era i did a few rounds there and had a big crash it was the right in the middle of Firestarter, and we had so much work on it that it made sense that i stopped i was trying to embark on a novice racing career while having a huge commitment to a band so basically he was racing and laid the bike down and this was in the middle of of them working uh, of on them working on Firestarter. Yeah, that would pretty much, that would encourage me to walk away real quick. I have a friend, his name is Dell, and he was an avid motorcycle motorcyclist. And he told me something that's always stuck with me. He says, it's not about if you're going to crash, it's that you're going to crash. Yeah, it's about when. Yeah, and 
he also told me that your life is only the cost of your gear, which is basically like saying, if you're willing to ride with a $30 motorcycle jacket, that's what your life is worth. But he has jackets that actually go up his spine Mm -hmm. and basically sit next to his spine. So if something happens to him, he's protected. His helmet, I think his helmet was something like $600. I mean, helmets do get expensive, don't get me wrong. But wow, that's pricey. So continuing with that article, I have two older brothers, one whom was a Z9 custom biker and the other one who was a bit more into his sports bike, power valves, and then progressing to GSXRS. I'm so sorry. This has an extra S on the end and I don't understand it. Well, it's plural. R's. It's plural. I used to pay them a couple quid to take me out on a spin on the back and we'd ride all the bike. uh, We'd ride to all the bike meets. There was never any doubt in my mind as a teenager looking for some freedom that I was going to jump on a moped as soon as I could pass my test. Bikes mean the same thing as they did then to me now. When you're scratching, it's that buzz of doing something that you love, that freedom. In your mind, you know that you're on it and you're just flowing. And I love that idea that he finds Mm -hmm. freedom in... Riding the bikes. Yeah. In his personal life, Flint dated TV presenter Gail Porter, and the couple split in 2000. He was subsequently married to Mayumi Kai, a Japanese DJ, which seems like a, a good fit for him. Makes sense. Yeah. That tracks. He, and I, I love this, he gave up booze, drugs, and cigarettes around the time they tied the knot in 2006, and Keith started a much more settled life in his native Essex. So... Just trying to get rid of all the toxicity in his life and settle down. While living the quiet life in the countryside, he bought and renovated the Leather Bottle Pub in Peshley. Forgive me if I'm not saying that right. I love that. (laughs) Essex and took up jogging and cycling. He actually ended his connection with the pub in 2017. So I hate to bring it down, but... Ah, here we go. Again, every episode of this podcast is going to end Every week, guys. Every week. Every week. I will say, I don't... I know he was married, but I really really couldn't find anything about his wife or being separated from her or anything like that. And you'll find out why I say that. Was on March 4th, 2019, following concerns for his welfare, police were called to Flint's home in North End near Greater Dumau, Essex, where he was found dead. He actually, they, they released this information later, he actually died by suicide. The police did not treat his death as suspicious, and his bandmate, Liam Howlett, stated via Instagram that Flint had ended his own life. Later that day, the official band website went black with an announcement of his suicide. In response to his death, Prodigy canceled all of their scheduled shows, which is completely understandable. I mean, how, how yeah, do you 100%. how do you go on? This is an official statement. Keith Flint, vocalist with The Prodigy, has died at age 49. He was found in his home in Essex on Monday. Prodigy released a statement confirming the news, saying it is with deepest shock and sadness that we can confirm the death of our brother and best friend Keith Flint, a true pioneer, innovator, and legend. He will be missed forever. We thank you for respecting the privacy of all concerned at this time. Liam Hallett, who formed the group in 1990, wrote on Instagram, I can't believe I'm saying this, but our older brother Keith took his own life over the weekend. I am shell-shocked. I'm going to say it. I'm shell-shocked, fucking angry, confused, and heartbroken. Rest in peace, brother. And Essex Police 
spokesman confirmed that a 49-year-old man had died. We were called to concerns for the wealth of a man at an address in Brook Hill, North End, just after 10, 8, 10 a.m. on Monday. We attended, and sadly, a 49-year-old man was pronounced dead at the scene. His next of kin have been informed. The death is not being treated as anything suspicious, and a file will be prepared for the coroner. Keith Flint had died by hanging. An inquest into the death of Prodigy's frontman heard Monday. So I think that just means, like, the result of the coroner's report was that he died by hanging it's okay. just it's just kind of unfamiliar wording for us maybe yeah. yeah the provisional cause of death has now been reported as a hanging and the toxicology reports are to follow and i couldn't find any updated information on that so i guess it hasn't been run yet because this was this was still this was only two months ago Right. And I do think it takes a while for toxicology to come back. Following Flint's death, fellow artists from the musical world paid tribute to him, including the Foo Fighters, which, remember, he had worked with Dave Grohl in the past. Right. James Blunt, who we know is the, the You're Beautiful song. Yeah. I think he might be a one-hit wonder over here, but he's bigger in the UK. Yes. So, Clint Menzel... Annie Nightingale, Frank Turner, The Chemical Brothers, Rue Reynolds, Gary Newman, Andy C., and Ben Drew. So those were all the people that were paying tribute to him after finding out about his passing. And I, I watched, it's really interesting because I started watching old footage from his interviews, and he does seem like a really sweet guy, if yeah. not... You know, a little bit more energetic than most people are, but <laughs> but I, he was he seemed witty and energetic and it was really interesting to see like his persona versus the, the video persona yeah but it's also the band is a collaboration and it's also your art it doesn't necessarily define you or or his image that he put out with the double mohawks and the green hair and the makeup and everything it doesn't define who he is i mean perfect example look at rob zombie oh yeah <laughs> like his yeah. made up persona versus his everyday is very different that was kind of keith flint troubled childhood but found things that he was very passionate about and he found his place in the world he found what made him happy and in turn he really pioneered a genre of music that for me is one of the most scientific intricate and interesting genres of music and looking back at that that girl that I was listening to his music it's cliche to say it but it touched me and it's resonates with me and I can still go back to that and peel away at that onion and find something new and find something beautiful and even though it was raging and very punk it's still beautiful <laughs> it's yeah it's so cool I like it still it's one of it's it holds one of my favorite genres of music. Like the second somebody says Prodigy, Firestarter starts playing in my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know that they have much more than that, but forgive me, like that's the song that I I remember the most from them. And his passing is really sad and I don't I don't have all the information about his actual passing cuz it's new. It's new. It's not that long ago. It's new and fresh and not everyone has all the answers and i think that they're they're actually respecting the wishes of the family which is surprising considering yeah well so here's the part where i end the episode by doing a couple personal quotes so i spent half the time so these are quotes from keith 
I spent half the time shouting at people in the crowds anyway, so it was a natural progression from there, really, just getting it from my mouth to express myself further. I don't think the lyrics are part of that expression. It's nice if they are truthful to yourself, but it's not what it's all about. So basically, he was saying, I have, I'm already screaming at people from the stage. I might as well have a mic in my hand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this one. I can't go on stage and have glow sticks waving at me. That's not representative of anything. Each gig is an hour of madness, and afterwards I'm absolutely exhausted, shaken to bits. The adrenaline charge and energy needed are shattering. I do love that. That's like almost two thoughts. Because the glow sticks were part of the rave community. Yeah. Like, big time. Because... <sighs> That's what I immediately think of when I think of raves and techno music. So this is this quote, I think, comes right on the heels of the first time he actually did vocals for the album, because it says, I've spent years expressing myself with my body and suddenly I have the chance to express myself with my voice. I feel like the first one and that one kind of go together. They're yeah, probably around the same time. This is another great one. At the end of the day, if people find me scary, fuck them. <laughs> yeah i like that parents i'm so sorry that i'm having to say the f word so much i apologize it's gonna have a warning on it and it's gonna have like a little thing at the beginning so there future lindley it's quoted yeah it's quotations it's quotes you can't help it and of course you know i can't i can't end it without having a really sad quote oh come on when and if i get to 65 i'd like to say that i did everything the lot. I'd like to think that I bedded loads of babes and lived out the ultimate sex fantasies. I like to have, th- I'd think I'd been through every color with my hair and everywhere that I've gone everywhere that could have been pierced on my body has been pierced. And even if all my beloved tattoos have gone saggy by then, at least I can stand up and say, I did it. Aww. I like that. That's the end of the inspiring. episode. A little, ins- little inspirational in his own way. A little inspirational. I like it. Yeah. So that's that's the episode on Keith Flint and the Prodigy. Um, this is one of those episodes that if we happen to, to get any updates, we will try to update you guys a little bit on something like the Toxicology Report. Anything interesting that comes out, we'll try to give you guys a little update of it. Yeah. So, so first of all, the Spotify playlist is now up for Keith Flint. And we also have Mac Miller. We have Nipsey Hussle. We have all the other artists that we've talked about, including some of the artists from the short set. You can check out the Spotify just by searching my name, which is Lindley Ehrlich. That's L-Y-N-L-Y. Last name E-H-R-L-I-C-H. So if you'd like to support our show, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can find our Twitter at rockandrolllt. Our Facebook is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. I'm still not going to say our website. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. I will say this about the Facebook. I do have some people that are trying to friend me on Facebook. If you're trying to friend my personal page on Facebook, please make sure to send me a private message beforehand and I'll accept your friend request. But if I get out of the blue, nowhere kind of friend request, I usually don't take them because a lot of times they're trying to sell me Ray-Ban sunglasses. And apologies. I love you all. I keep my personal Facebook personal. That's my space for me and and my close friends. No, it's not. It's Facebook. Nope. That's my space. I'm sorry, guys. I love you all. I will gladly interact with you on Instagram and Twitter and our Rock and Roll Heaven Facebook page or my 
my Tracy Jane music page, but apologies in advance. And I will send you a message and let you know nothing personal. It's just, that's my own private space. Yeah. We do engage with you guys over at our rock and roll heaven pod Facebook page. But as far as like our private Facebook pages go, I usually use mine mainly for my work and to voice my opinions on certain matters, yeah. which have nothing to do with a podcast. So thank you guys so much for checking out the episode this week. Make sure to check us out next week when we're going to be talking about Roy Clark, which is a, which is a um, new patron request. So here's the thing with the new patron request, because we do, we've got Roy Clark and then you have another new patron request the following week. So we still do have a couple slots left for, uh, if you remember a few episodes ago, we said that we would, um, we would be offering for the first, so the first few patrons that subscribed at the $5 groupie level, we give you the opportunity to suggest to us your top three picks of who you would like us to do next. So that could help, you know, an artist that's in the queue get bumped forward and either LD or I will cover that for you. Yeah. With a special thank you. Yes. And the other thing is uh, we would love for you guys just to take like two minutes out to rate and review us on iTunes. We are still, we, I didn't mention this last week, but we are still running our, May giveaway, which is for the best review, we are giving away our show notes for whatever episode you choose. So any of our episodes in our back catalog are fair game, and that will be signed by me and TJ. Yeah. So please, we we could really use some ratings and reviews. Yeah. So we've been hovering at the four for a while. So yeah. And um, they're they're four great ones. They're four amazing ones. So get in there. Up that game. Yeah. <laughs> um, but other than that, I think that's about it. So, again, thank you guys. And keep rocking in the free world. TJ. Yeah. I think it's bedtime. I think it's bedtime. Yeah. All, All right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 